We're continuing our, our series in the Advent story, and we're reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came from Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet was, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will, be, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors. Let me have a brief word of prayer before we get into today. Uh, Heavenly Father, would you remind us of the depth of your love today as we are in this Christmas season? Father, I pray that we would not have our mind on the distractions that we may have walked in here with today. Oh, but God, that we would be reminded of who you are and why you have come and that that would shape uh, our lives, and that that would impact us in real, meaningful ways. God, would you remind us? And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the most unique places in all of this planet is the black barbershop. <laughs> now, 10 minutes into being in a barbershop, especially in New York City, uh, you will hear conversations ranging from politics to religion, and because this is New York City, somewhere along the line, basketball will make its way into the conversation. Arguments about who's better, Jordan or Kobe, and is this really even a question? Right? Thank you very much. It's Jordan. <laughs> uh, and I was going to this one barber, and I absolutely hated going to him, and I would be sitting in a chair praying that nobody would bring up basketball because I knew that as soon as somebody brought it up, he was going to turn the clippers off put him down, and start arguing. <laughs> now, I stopped going to him for two reasons. One is pretty obvious. I don't have as much hair to cut these days. Uh, but secondly, it would take like an hour just to get a haircut. I'm like, bro, please, Lord, please, do not let them start talking about LeBron James, because if they do, he is going to lose his mind. And he would go crazy and start uh, talking about LeBron and arguing whether or not he's a traitor for leaving Cleveland and do his championship count. Uh, and he would just for, out for like an hour, I felt like he was just arguing, arguing, arguing. Uh, and here's what I've uh, thought about that. Um, it's really difficult slash impossible to talk about the NBA in any meaningful way and not talk about LeBron. Now, you don't have to like him, you don't have to love him, you don't have to think he's the best player on the planet, but you really can't discuss uh, an adequate history of the NBA in the last five years without mentioning his name. 
Now, we are in this series called Advent, and the word Advent, especially if you're new to church and you don't know all these Christian-y terms, uh, Advent means the arrival of a notable person, the arrival of someone in history who's of note. And there's nobody in history that's more of note than Jesus. Now, there's no way that you can have an adequate conversation about the history of the world and not talk about Jesus. No matter what you believe about God, you don't have to know what you believe about the Bible or about Jesus or about the apostles or about the resurrection. You don't have to have all of your beliefs all concrete to agree that Jesus was a really, really notable person. So much so that your calendar, your clock today is set uh, by the day that Jesus Christ entered into history. Now, nobody else can have that claim. Uh, Today is a year 2016, 2016 years after Jesus came. And all of history is separated between B.C. and A.D., before Jesus and after he came. That's how important that Jesus is. Now, in this season of Advent, uh, we're looking at uh, Jesus and, and his coming and why he came, and more importantly, what that means for me and you. Uh, because in Jesus' coming, uh, nobody in history had a, a neutral reaction to Jesus, People who really encountered Jesus uh, responded in a number of ways. Uh, John Stott said it like this, the only way to, to respond to Jesus is extremely. No one who ever met Jesus had a moderate reaction to him. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely in love with him and tried to give their whole lives to him, but nobody ever had a moderate reaction to him. And we're confronted with this question today in Advent, Uh, Jesus Christ has come into the world. How will you and I respond? Now, I love the way Matthew starts uh, chapter 1 of um, Matthew. And if you ever sat down to read the Bible, Matthew 1 is like one of those books where your eyes start to get heavy three verses in. It's like, all right, and -and so-and-so, and Ishmael begat so-and-so. And and you're like, yo, I don't even know who is begat. (laughs) That's like a hood name. Yo, begat, what up? And all of these different, uh, this genealogy, and the reason Matthew does that is not to bore you, it's because he didn't want to start his uh, account of Jesus' life with, hey, once upon a time there was a dude named Jesus. No, he's saying this Jesus is a historical figure that actually came. Jesus actually came, and the question for us is, how will we respond to Jesus? I love the scripture that we're going to get into today. Uh, It shows us uh, a progression of how people responded to Jesus, how people actually responded to Jesus. And while you might not be able on the surface to identify uh, yourself in this story, uh, hopefully as we dig in a little bit, you'll see yourself and and where you fit in and how you line up. Now, the story starts off like this in Matthew 2 uh, that Lester just read. Uh, It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In verse 3, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the first reaction we see to Jesus is one of disturbance, that it says that King Herod and all of the people of Jerusalem were disturbed. Now, we talked about Herod a lot last week and talked about what he was like. And basically, uh, for all my Walking Dead fans, don't worry, I'm not going to give any spoilers. Uh, King Herod was like Negan, right? Star Wars people, he's like Darth Vader. He was the enemy. Uh, He was a really bad king that uh, was ruthless. And he was so 
um, preoccupied and worried about somebody coming to take his throne that he would have anybody and everybody killed who would threaten his authority. And it was a joke uh, in the Roman Empire that it was better to be one of Herod's uh, pigs, the word heis, than it was to be one of his sons, the word hus, uh, because Herod didn't eat pork, but he had a number of his sons executed. And that joke is much funnier in Greek, I promise you. <laughs> so he was that level crazy. He was that level preoccupied. And it says that when he heard that Jesus Christ, uh, born king of the Jews, was arriving, he was disturbed. And not just him, but all of Jerusalem with him. And I was looking at that scripture and I was thinking, what is so disturbing about an innocent little baby uh, that would disturb you? Um, one of the words that you see the word disturbed described in Greek is uh, terasso, which basically means an inner turmoil. It means uh, that uh, uh, it's an unsettling deep within you. What's the last thing that's disturbed you? What's the last thing that unsettled you? Maybe it's a picture of a, a kid in Aleppo, and that just disturbs you, and you can't even look at the computer screen uh, and focus on it. Or maybe it's the way... Uh, your family operates, and it just bothers you. Uh, Maybe Christmas is coming up, and you're reminded of who's not going to be there or the dysfunction in your family, and it disturbs you. And this is the reaction that Scripture says that Herod had to Jesus. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Um, What is it about Jesus that would take away the calmness of his mind? Um, Here's what the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us a snapshot of Herod as a mirror into our own lives. Not that you would have someone executed, um, but that you and I, when we encounter the real Jesus, he can often disturb us. Because here's why. Jesus comes as a king. He comes as a king with a kingdom and a specific agenda. And that means that when the king comes and when the king sets up his kingdom, that you and I would be out of control. And if you're like me and you'd like to be in control, then Jesus could disturb us in serious ways. Uh, There's a scripture that I've been reading ever since I first became a Christian that has uh, disturbed me every single time I read it. Uh, Luke 9 and 23, Jesus says it. He says, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Here's what Jesus says to his followers. If you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. Now, Brothers and sisters, people don't pick up their crosses uh, to walk to Whole Foods. Uh, They pick up their crosses to go and to die, to to lay aside their interests, to die to themselves, their will, their agenda, their goals, and their purposes. And if you're like me, that's pretty disturbing. And I actually think this story is not just a snapshot of what we might be like, but oftentimes it's actually a progression of our spiritual lives, that when Jesus first enters into our life, the first thing that it could do for us is it could disturb us. J.C. Ryle, in his book called Holiness, he talks about, uh, he has this chapter called The Fight, and he talks about uh, there's a vast quantity of religion in this world that is not true, genuine Christianity. Yeah, it passes musters, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not real. It is not the real thing which was called Christianity thousands of years ago, because you never see fight, any fight in their religion. No spiritual turmoil, no conflict, no effort, no self-denial. They know nothing of that at all. It is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. True Christianity, he says, is a fight. True Christianity involves you being disturbed. And here's how I see it in my life. I see it in my life every single time that I have to forgive someone. And I'm not talking about somebody who did something small, but someone who has deeply offended me. 
Maybe they talked about somebody that I love. And I can daydream about all of the horrible things I want to happen to that person as a result of harming someone that I loved. Or I'm confronted with Jesus who says, forgive them. Don't hold it against them. Wash your hands of the situation. You absorb the debt that they have paid and forgive them free and clear. Don't talk about them anymore. Release them from their debt. Now, you might be a much better Christian than I am, and some of you are, um, but certainly that disturbs me. It is deeply, deeply troubling for me to know that I am called to forgive people that I don't want to forgive. But here's what Jesus does when he comes, and this is what's so disturbing about him. He calls us uh, to lay down our kingdom and to lay down our will. Uh, a few months ago, we had a, a series called The Lord's Prayer. and Week by week, we would examine the prayer that Jesus taught us how to pray and how you and I would connect to God. And this is how Jesus starts the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus lets us know that if you and I want to connect to God, if you and I want a relationship with God, if you and I want to learn what it means to grow in God, we're going to have to pray these words, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. Your will be done, my will is not going to be done. Because you and I have a way that we would prefer things to go. We have a will. We have a set of desires. We have a set of desired outcomes. We have a set of desired people that we like to interact with. And Jesus says, if you're going to pray, if you're going to connect to me, this is what the real Jesus does. He comes, and in some ways, it's disturbing because we're choosing to lay down the control, the direction, and our desires in favor of what God wants, in favor of what God wills, in favor of what God desires. And that, quite frankly, is troubling. That's also a great sign that you and I have met, and you and I are growing towards and growing in relationship to Jesus even in passing and handing over the power of our choosing, uh, not my plans, but God, your plans. I have a set of desired outcomes for my life, and I'm saying, no, not that. God, I want your will for my life. And true Christianity, a true interaction with Jesus can oftentimes disturb us. Now, the second group that we see in the scripture, uh, continuing the progression of, uh, I feel like my spiritual journey uh, is the chief priests and the religious teachers. Uh, the second way that we can respond uh, to God, the second that we, way that we can respond to Jesus' arrival and coming uh, is seen here in verses 4 through 6. And if you read through this too quickly, um, man, you would have missed it. So we'll reread it again. It says, verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and by he here, it's talking about King Herod. So this crazy dude, King Herod, uh, he hears that Jesus has arrived, and he calls together all of the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, the scripture says that these people weren't just regular priests. They weren't JV priests. They were the chief priests. And out of, if anybody would have known what the Messiah to come signifies, it was them. If anybody would know how much people have for thousands of years prayed for the arrival of the Messiah in their land, it was the chief priests in Israel. And here's what happens. When Jesus comes, when Jesus has arrived, they have the opportunity to respond to his coming, and this is what they do. They respond with self-interest. 
Now, Herod was a crazy dude, and they had every right to be fearful of Herod. And their response to Jesus' coming was to snitch on Jesus. Yo, I actually think that he's over here. As soon as they got, as soon as they were called and told to give information about where Jesus was, listen, this was the hope of their people that for thousands of years, uh, uh, the, the entire nation of Israel has waited, prayed for this Messiah, and they knew that Herod was going to kill this guy if he could put his hands on him. And their response to Jesus, their response to Jesus' coming was in uh, self-interest, self-preservation, and them advancing in Herod's kingdom. What do I have to say to protect my neck? What do I have to say so that I can rise and, and, and grow forward in Herod's kingdom? Even if it means selling out the hope of my entire people. Even if it means giving up the location of the Messiah. And here's what we can see for ourselves in here. The essence of religion is self and self-interest. And I've been here for the, probably the first five years of my Christianity uh, my entire walk with God was all about me. I didn't want to go to hell. I went to a church. They, they, they showed me them gates, and I was like, nah, I'm not going there. And I had a lot of religious activity. I went to Bible study. I taught a Bible study. I went to church. Uh, I prayed. I read Bibles. I underlined stuff, and I would go to church and make sure people can see how much stuff I had underlined and written in the margins, just have my Bible lazily uh, on the table. And I had a lot of religious activity, uh, but it was all done for Jordan. It was all done for Jordan. Now, here's what I know to be true of me, and it might be true of you, uh, that in our pursuit, when we are encountered with Jesus, when we are uh, having the opportunity to respond to who Jesus is, that we can often take the root, which is self-interest. And, and here's a couple of quick examples. Here's a, a lot of motivation for people's religion. Uh, it's to work off guilt to advance in this world, to fulfill your need for purpose, or to give you hope for the afterlife. Work off guilt, advance in the world, fulfill your need for purpose, or to give you hope for the afterlife. Now, guilt is not a good thing. Uh, guilt is not something that God wants us to carry around. Uh, and I've certainly been there carrying a, a whole lot of guilt, guilt for the things that I've done, guilt for the things that I was still doing and couldn't stop doing quick enough. Um, and probably for the first five years of my Christian walk, all I was doing was trying to work off guilt. So I would read more Bible than anybody else. I would pray more. I would do as much as I could because deep down inside, even though I heard Jesus forgave people, I was like, well, maybe he can forgive them, but I don't know if he really has forgiven me. I don't know if I'm grateful enough and if Jesus is going to snatch the carpet from under my feet. And um, I was doing so much religious activity just to work off guilt and to work off the guilt that I had amassed for the years and years. Now, to someone working off guilt, Christianity is not good news at all. It's just your formula for how you work off guilt, which is why a lot of people don't talk to their friends about Jesus, because it's like, who am I to, to give you my formula for getting rid of my guilt? I'll just give you, you can have your own formula. However you want to work off your guilt, go for it. Here's what I do. I go to church, I do this, and I do all of this, and it's not the good news of the gospel. It's not the good news of God's love poured out for us. It's not us remembering the purpose of why Jesus came to, to make us sons and daughters of God, free of charge. It's not good news. It's good advice on what you got to do to work off your guilt. Now, here's a great litmus test for whether or not your walk with God is uh, based off working off a of guilt or if it's truly having received the good news. You and I talk about good things that happened to us. Think about the best thing that's happened to you in the last 
three months. I bet you you told somebody about it. Imagine one day you're going to work or you're going to a meeting and you can't be late. Everything is going wrong. And then all of a sudden you get downstairs, you see the express train, you run down as fast as you can, and the doors close right in your face. And then, miraculously, the doors open and you slide right on in. (laughs) And there's a seat right there. Nobody smells bad. It's like, yo, this is a good day. Now, I bet you you would tell somebody about that day. You would tell somebody, you would tell everybody, all your coworkers, all your friends, how you miraculously caught the train in the doors somehow. Maybe it was a miracle. God split the Red Sea for Moses. Maybe he opened the subway doors for you. (laughs) But you would tell somebody about it. A couple months ago, uh, I got a text from a friend, and he texted me a really cryptic message. He says, what are you doing on November 6th? I'm like, uh, do I respond honestly? I don't know. Uh, that's usually a setup. I don't usually get hit for the okie doke too often. Uh, usually I like to know what is it that you are inviting me to so I can make up an excuse or an illness. Uh, Jameson hasn't been feeling good. I don't know what's going on. And then the next thing I see lighting up, I said, we're free. I see those iMessage bubbles lighting up and he says, I got tickets for Hamilton. Yeah, that was my reaction. And not the, I got to sell my firstborn son or amputate or give somebody a kidney prices, but face value prices. Now, we went to Hamilton, had a fantastic time. I had to stop my wife from crying and singing as loud as she could through the entire performance. I'm like, babe, they, don't, they didn't pay all this money to hear you sing. I, love, I like to hear it. I like to hear it, but they don't want to hear it. And after seeing Hamilton, and it was absolutely fantastic, uh, I found a way to work that into every conversation. <laughs> every conversation. You'd be like, oh, my knee hurts. I'm like, you know what? My knee was hurting the other day. I was watching Hamilton for like three hours. <laughs> I had to sit down. But then, you know, it worked out. <laughs> we had the playbill conveniently placed on our coffee table for everybody to see. Like, oh, I thought I cleaned up. I'm sorry. Let me just, <laughs> let me just clean this thing up. Oh, this? <laughs> Things that are good news to you, you'll talk about freely. Things that are good news to you, really, really good news, you will find a way to bring up in certain conversations. You will not hide what you think is good news. You will not pretend that it's not good news to you. You will not be ashamed or embarrassed that it's good news because it is truly good news to you. And here's what um, cuts the knees off of so much of uh, whatever the, the field of evangelism is and why people feel difficult, uh, why people don't even want their coworkers or friends to even know that they're Christian or that you go to church or that you believe in the Bible or Jesus or any of these things is because it's not really good news. And that might be a sign that what our approach to Jesus, our reaction, our response to Jesus coming is in self-interest, that we're using Jesus to work off our guilt. But we really haven't received the goodness, the freedom, the liberation of the gospel which is good news, not good, ad- good advice. Now, also, it could be to advance in this world. Uh, you want a better apartment. You want a better situation. You want uh, God to answer your prayers. And when the praises go up, the blessings come down. <laughs> right? And you just think that Jesus is the best way to get what you want out of life. And oftentimes, this is how this shows up in my life. Uh, so I'm really disgruntled and I'm kind of angry at God when I don't, get, I don't get what I prayed about. 
I'm like, this whole prayer thing is stupid. I ain't want to pray anyway. And this might be true for you, that you stopped praying once that thing for you didn't come through. You were praying. You were praying earnestly. You were setting reminders on your phone. Pray every day at noon. And when it didn't happen, you stopped praying. And part of that reason is because our response, our reaction to Jesus, what we were coming to Jesus for was in self-interest. It wasn't that we were caught up in who he was. It wasn't that we were grateful. It wasn't that we were caught up in the good news of the gospel. It was that this, Jesus was the best way for us to advance in the world. And certainly our need to fulfill our, our purpose. Uh, anybody in this room, certainly anybody in this world can withstand a whole lot if you know that there's a purpose for it. You can withstand a whole lot of pain as long as it's not meaningless. And our biggest fear is, is that your life right now, you're doing a whole bunch of meaningless stuff. And certainly give us a hope for the afterlife. Uh, so many people, the entirety, the climax of their relationship with God is just so you don't go to hell. And listen, if this is our approach to God, that we're just trying to work off guilt or advance in this world or give, give us some sort of purpose or um, uh, not go to hell, uh, then we're coming to Jesus with self-interest. And that is not going to produce passion and gratitude uh, and the type of remembering of what God wants in, in our lives. It's not going to produce uh, the type of fruit that you and I want in our lives. It's not going to actually make a difference in your life. All it's going to do is just be another list of things you have to do so you can fulfill your side of the transaction. But here's the good news of uh, Christmas that we see in the story. Uh, the third group of people, uh, they're not there for, um, uh, they're not disturbed. They're not there for self-interest. They are there. They said they come to, to worship. Uh, they're not there for the transaction. They're not there for themselves. They saw the beauty, and they show us the beauty of what a life touched by Jesus can look like. Uh, verse 10 uh, through 11, we see the Magi. It says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, let me stop you for a second. If you think that worship is about a one hour or uh, today, uh, an hour and 10, an hour and 12-minute worship service where you can go and worship, and then you go back to the rest of your life not worshiping. Uh, you and I will always worship something. The only choice we have is what we will worship. Now, in Scripture, it gives us this word um, for what worship is, and it's the word habad, and it basically means uh, to be captured or to be enslaved. So to, be, to worship means to be captured by something, that something has your attention. Something has your interest. Something has your ultimate affection. And out of that one thing, you will reorient and reorder your life because of that thing that has captured you. Because of that one thing that has your attention, your affection, and all these different things. And above all, you and I are not the type of people who will be able to modify our behavior from messing around with the leaves, but the root. The root of the tree has to be something that is sprung forth, not in um, self-preservation, but in worship. And this is why Jesus asks the first people that would ever follow him. This is the question that Jesus asked in John 1.38, and this is a question that I think Jesus is asking us today. First people to follow Jesus, uh, they come to him, and he turns to them and says, what do you want? He doesn't ask them what they believe. He doesn't ask them what do they know. He doesn't ask them to recite a scripture. He's asking them, what are your wants? What do you desire? Because he knows that all of us are beings that will obey our desires. 
The thing that we desire most will shape our entire life. And this is why it tells us in Proverbs 4 and 23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from what you adore. Everything you do flows from what you have really set your affection for. If it's money, you're going to overwork like crazy. If it's uh, an appearance, you're going to invest so much time and energy in making sure you're laid, uh, your hair is laid. And everything is perfectly uh, in, in pristine condition. And you won't go out the house unless everything is perfect. Listen, Scripture doesn't tell us to guard our hearts in vain. It, it tells us to guard our hearts because everything we do flows from it. And what we see here from the Magi is what I hope is true for our lives uh, as we contemplate the meaning of this season, that you and I would grow in depth and appreciation for Jesus. And listen, that we would remember, that we would be reminded of the beauty of Jesus, and that would capture our hearts, and that would orient our lives, not the other way around. We don't start from the branches to the roots, but we have to start from the root in our hearts, and this is what Advent is all about, uh, separating the noise and focusing in on Jesus. Uh, Jesus Jesus doesn't want us to be passionless, uh, guilt-ridden followers of him that are just trying to check another box but people so filled and so consumed with a vision, so consumed with who he is, that it would orient and change everything else in our lives. Now, we've talked about just how a lot of our reactions in life are based on trying to get rid of guilt, and guilt and shame are probably at the core of almost every single decision that you make is to avoid guilt and is to avoid shame. And that's not going to produce anything in us if we're just trying to work off guilt But in Jesus, we can find the real answer for guilt. In Jesus, we can find the real answer, the real thing that will actually satisfy shame. And that's the thing that will lead us to actual worship of him. Uh, There's a scripture in um, Luke 19 that talks about Jesus and this guy named Zacchaeus. And this story messes with me every single time. uh, Because when I think about people who are guilty, uh, and I think about myself, all the ways I feel guilty, uh, here's what we do. Normally, we try to either lower our standards so we don't feel guilty again, or we, try, or we get defensive, and we try to prove ourselves that we're not as bad as we thought we were. But both of those, they're not going to produce worship in you. All they're going to make us is cold, dead, dry religious people trying to work our way into something. But Jesus gives us a much, much better way. Luke 19 is a story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And certainly in those times, tax collectors would have brought out the rawest of emotions in people. They were traitors. They were collecting taxes for the enemy, and they were giving it to, uh, they were giving it to the enemy. Not only that, but they were oftentimes taking extra, and they were stealing. They were stealing extra on top of them already being traitors. And this is a person that Jesus encounters in Luke 19. Jesus sees him high up on a sycamore tree. And this man, Zacchaeus, is trying to figure out, how can I work off my guilt? Jesus sees him in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Tonight, I'm going to your house. And everybody stops and is stunned and is thinking, why in the world would Jesus go to the house of a sinner, a tax collector? And Jesus goes, and the scripture says that he reclines with him. And reclining basically means that Jesus and he were sitting down like they were old friends. And here's the thing. If Jesus would treat a tax collector, the worst of the worst, with such grace, such kindness, such love, then there's hope for me and you. If this is the Jesus that the Magi came and when they bowed at his feet, 
uh, they knew that this was the type of Jesus he was going to be. This was the type of king he was going to be. Not the king that lords over people in, in ways, and, uh, but the king that serves his servants. And that uh, a tax collector, the worst of the worst, could find hope and redemption in Jesus. Jesus goes to his house and says, salvation has come to this house today. Jesus initiates it. Jesus starts it. Jesus perfects it. Jesus finishes it. It is all about Jesus. And if he has grace for the worst of the worst, if he has grace for the person that everybody else hates, then he has grace for you and for me. Then his grace found for me and for you. We don't have to try to lower our standards. We don't have to try to uh, be defensive on uh, how good or, uh, good or bad we are. But simply, Christmas reminds us that the king has come. This king has come, and he came to die for all of our sins so that people like Zacchaeus, people like me, could receive real grace. That people would look at me and say, yo, why would God be so gracious to this person? This is the type of king that Jesus is. Not a king to be threatened by, but a king to be worshipped. Later in another scripture, you see another story about Jesus, and it, it fills my eyes with tears when I think about it. It's from the Gospel of Matthew. It's about a guy named Blind Bartimaeus, Mark 10, rather. Jesus and his disciples went to Jericho, and as they were leaving, they were followed by a large crowd. A blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road, when he heard that it was Jesus from Nazareth, he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Many people told the man to stop, call him over. They called out to the blind man and said, uh, I'm sorry, many people told the blind man to stop, but he shouted even louder, son of David, have pity on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him over. They called out to the blind man and said, don't be afraid. Come on. He is calling for you. The man threw off his coat as he jumped and ran to Jesus. Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man answered, Master, I want to see. Jesus told him, you may go. Your eyes are healed because of your faith. Now, in this story in Mark 10, you see Jesus interacting with somebody that for decades everybody in society has passed over. Everybody in society has passed over. Even the other religious people, Jesus' own followers, told him, yo, shut up. You're not even important enough to be calling Jesus' name. When Jesus hears that this blind beggar is calling for him, he stops and says, yo, no. He stops everything he's doing. He stops the procession of wherever he's going. He stops it to pay attention to someone that has been overlooked their entire life. Someone that people have walked past day after day after day after day. And if Jesus notices the one that nobody else notices, if Jesus pays attention to the one that nobody else pays attention to, if Jesus shows grace to the one that everybody steps over as they go about their day, how much more would he show grace to me and you? That God has not forgotten about you. You have not fallen through the cracks. You are not someone that Jesus will ignore. You and I are not dispensable to Jesus, but Jesus, this is the type of king. He is not one that's sitting high on a throne and eating grapes, but the king that comes down and notices people. You don't have to worry about if you're finding your purpose. You don't have to worry about if your life uh, has um, checked every box that you want it to check. But in Jesus, we find a king that can be worshipped because he is not going to forget about you. He is not going to forget about me. He is not going to overlook you. He is not going to overlook the, even the least of these. So this is the king that came to die and 
the Magi worshipped. And it's just Jesus that gives us hope. And it's not a conditional hope that's based on how good you look or how big your bank account is, what size your apartment is, whether or not you have outdoor space. This is the Jesus that came on Christmas to die. And here's the message of Christmas, that the Christmas and Jesus coming gives us a certainty of the unshakable love which God has for us. Listen, there's a scripture I've been meditating on all week. Uh, it's a scripture that speaks to what the love of God is, and it comes from 1 John 4 and 10. And if you're looking for a verse to memorize, uh, I would say start with this one. It says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is real love, not that you love God, not that I love God, but that God loved us, and he sent his son on Christmas as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is the Jesus that will deal with us graciously. He will lead us, and no matter if anybody else is with us, he'll stop and notice us even if nobody else notices us. And this is a king uh, that is not to be feared or ignored or try to be used for selfish purposes, but one, like the Magi, that we can worship. Now, one of the things that we did last year in Renaissance, um, which is something that had varying degrees of success in people's lives, is something called CBR. And Aswan mentioned it a little while ago during the announcements. But CBR is basically this. It is a daily reminder for you to know and focus your love, focus your, your senses in on who Jesus is and who God is. Uh, and day after day after day after day, uh, finding God and praying through your pen and scripture to know, to, to find out who God is and to con- continue to inform yourself with that. Now, I've been um, a Christian for a number of years, and I've never had any period in my life where I've grown closer to God that I wasn't daily immersed in scripture. Now, if you do CBR, which I'm, we have a video that we're going to send out on how to do it and all that good stuff, uh, basically, you should know this. Some days, you won't hit the mountaintop with the most amazing emotional experience in the world. There'll be plenty of days where you go through it, and it wasn't something that you felt like was a direct revelation from God, that God sent you uh, a text right to your phone. Some days, you'll read something that you might not understand fully, and that's totally okay. But the only way for you you and I to redirect our hearts around who God is that we would grow as worshipers of God, that Jesus Christ would capture our attention, is daily immersing ourselves in God's story and in Scripture. And today we're going to have those in the cafeteria's uh, suggested donation of 10 bucks. If you can't afford it, it's yours for free. But we want you to have, uh, we want you to be engaged in a daily routine, in a daily routine of uh, finding who God is in Scripture, because that's the only way that you and I are going to grow. Now, in just a minute, the, the choir is going to come back out. And here's what I want for us. I want us to stand and I want us to worship uh, the king that has come in this Christmas season, that has come to rescue us, not to give you good advice, but to give us good news. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, I thank you that you, um, you're not a God that holds grudges against us. You're not uh, sitting in heaven with a scorecard trying to evaluate how great my performance was in this last quarter. Um, But God, that we can be reminded this season why you came, that this is love, not that we have loved you, but that you have loved us and sent your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, we accept that sacrifice. It's better than anything we could have brought on our own. It's the perfect sacrifice, and nothing needs to be added to it. So today, God, would you allow our hearts to be captured by who you are,
God, that we will go along and we will be captured and enamored by the gospel and know the depths of the good news that it is to us. At this time, Father, we pray that our hearts would be made on fire, that you would enlarge in our hearts to appreciate who you are, and that this Christmas season we can remember you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.